expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. From ICRT, this is Hearsay. I'm Keith Manconian, and this hour we'll be featuring stories told at Taipei Story Slam events held throughout the year. Today, we'll be focusing on the theme of coming home. Now, at Taipei Story Slam, storytellers are given a couple of rules. First, they're told their stories have to be true, they have to be from personal experience, and they have to be told from memory. So, we're going to be hearing real stories told at live events from right here in Taiwan. So, the theme, coming home. It's a good topic for this show because, after all, I think for a lot of us living in Taiwan, this notion of home is tricky business. It's a moving target as we come and go from country to country or place to place, and what it means changes with time. That's definitely something our first storyteller has had to navigate. Her name is Su Chan Eva Kuo. She was born in southern Taiwan, but moved to the U.S. after middle school and stayed there for college, which ended up being a bit of an adventure for her. Here she is, live at Taipei Story Slam. So I went to college in the States. And imagine being an Asian person from here. Imagine a cultural shock. When I went to the college and I, I was in the dorm and all the freshmen, they were so excited about what they can do in college. And they were planning on all these amazing night outs and all that. And I was like, excuse me, can I be part of this? And then they say, yes, Ava, come on with us. And then you have to look nice. So that was when I started to learn to look nice. <laughs> so they, well, I, well, I, I was rooming with two girls, a black girl and a, and a, and a white girl. So it was nice. The three of us, we, we are like everything. <laughs> uh, and, and we're tall and we're beautiful. So I was like, yeah, let's put some really nice clothes on with those really short jeans and like really skimpy top with like hanging. It was my first time my friend invited all of us to a house party. So we were living in a dry campus, meaning you may not have alcohol in there. So we might as well go out and have fun. And I'm very lightweight. I get drunk really easily. I'm, I'm a shrimp cooked. So, <laughs> all right. So we went to this house party. It was really big. My, my college was surrounded by highways. So they make sure that the college is dry because it's surrounded by highway. And everywhere you go, you have to go in with a car. And then they will kind of check if you have alcohol in there. Um, so this house party was across the highway from the campus. So what we did, we took a taxi and went to the, the house. It was three houses, and when we got there, it was loud music and uh, a lot of cool people, you know, like I was a freshman and all of the sophomores seems really cool and the juniors seems like they know what they are doing and the seniors like, oh, I got all the girls kind of thing. So I was like, oh, okay, so maybe today I'm just gonna be here and have a fun time and maybe miss somebody who will introduce me to this amazing college experience in America. So I pay my, I pay my 20 bucks, and they, they, they put a little band on my wrist, so I went into a party, and it was just like something that I saw in movies. People drinking, 
drinking, beer pong, drinking. There was jungle juice, all kind of alcohol, and there was a big cake, three big cakes in the yard, and everyone was drinking and all that. I was having fun. I was really happy, and everything was in slow motion, and the music was really loud. I was not hearing. I was like, "Oh my god, this is great! I love college." And all of a sudden, I heard someone was screaming. I was still very happy, but someone was screaming. Run! The cop is here! And I was like, "Holy! Shit. I I I'm here on a student visa. They can just send me home for whatever." <laughs> so we just start running, and that's all I remember. <laughs> I was running hard, and then I woke up in my bed. So I made it. I made it back to my bed, and I was not <laughs> caught by the cop. But I don't remember what's in between. I was running. I remember it was hard. It was a very difficult work. Like I was like running through something, and I was scraping myself, and I had little whatever wounds and bruises on me. I didn't know what I how I get it. And the next day, there was the news about the the party. Everyone was talking about a party, and someone left a cake on campus. It's a dry campus. You're not supposed to have alcohol or a cake. You have a beer cake on campus, so people were talking about who's so stupid, who would leave such huge evidence on campus. I was like, yeah. I was talking to my friends, like, yeah, that stupid or stupid boy did that. It's gonna ruin our life, and they're gonna be so strict from now on and all that. And I saw a picture of myself <laughs> on Facebook with my name tagged. I was standing in the middle of a highway with the cake, <laughs> with the cake. I didn't know how it happened, but I was carrying a cake. And my friend was like, "Oh my gosh, Ava, Ava, you don't know what you did." We were running, and there was cop going, and then he said, "Throw the cake!" So I threw the cake and just rolled down the hill to the amphitheater, and then I was like, "Yep,、yeah, it's not there." But I didn't remember until I saw that pictures, and everything came to life. But I was not caught because I was. I never get caught, and I was smart enough to deal with the situation. And they just forgot about the big cake in the yard, so I was fine, and I'm fine, and I'm here, so I'm not arrested, and I finished my education. <laughs> so that's my story. Thank you. That was Su Chun Ava Kuo. She came back to Taiwan about two years ago and now works as a writer and producer at a boutique film company here in Taiwan. If you want to catch her performing in Taipei, she also does stand-up comedy with the Republic of Comedy Taiwan. Now, I was a little curious if Ava felt like she'd be a different person if she'd never been to the U.S. Ava told me, "Absolutely." And it was the chance to meet so many different kinds of people over there that really made the difference. I was lucky enough to be exposed to all these different people, and、uh, it has shaped my worldview because all these people they have their own experience, and they are my portals to different parts of the world. And it's nice to be able to access without having to travel as much, and people will bring their knowledge to you. And it has shaped me. I become more curious, and I 
I know there are different things available out there for me to explore, which is nice. But if I stay here, I might not have the same experience. Maybe I would still be me and be curious, but I won't have that access. I won't be able to access these knowledge as easy. So you were gone for a really long time. Uh, do you still feel connected to Taiwanese culture? I mean, uh, do, you, do you still try to immerse yourself in Taiwanese culture in some ways here? Well, yes. For example, I'm completely fluent in Taiwanese. And I'm familiar with Taiwanese, with Taiwanese culture. And I'm, I, can, I can eat anything. <laughs> I don't have problem with any sort of food. And also, I, I'm still pretty close to my, to my family. So, so it doesn't change. It's just that I have a different part of myself that I share with the international group of people. I don't have difficulties to like, appreciate local culture at all. Up next, we're going to be chatting with Brandon Thompson. Brandon is a longtime Taiwan resident. He teaches English. He's a performer who frequents Taipei Story Slam events, and he's just a generally fun guy to chat with. So we were really excited when he was nice enough to come into the ICRT studio to tell us a little bit about his Taiwan experience. Now, just to give you a heads up, Brandon is a pretty funny guy, so on this track... You're going to be hearing a little giggling in the background from myself and ICRT DJ Joey C, just so you know what that is. I was in a bank down south, and I was just going to withdraw money because I was going to move the next day, moving apartments from from Jiaoxi to Elan when I first got here, six months. And I was standing in line, and all of a sudden, a clerk from behind the counter, it was a long line, a clerk from behind the counter came out, walked up to me and says, excuse me, sir, the bank manager would like to speak with you. And I was like, are you kidding? What? What did I do wrong? Is it because, again, I knew I parked outside. Everybody parks illegally outside. Come on. So I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Did I do something? And he's like, no, no, no. She did. He just wants to talk to you. I was like, oh. I'm kind of in a hurry. I'm at it's lunch hour. And she's like, well, just, it won't take very long. Come to the back. So I went to the back and he greeted me. Uh, really nice guy. He took me into his office and he poured green tea for me and he wanted to just speak English with me. And we got to talking for like, after after like 10 minutes, I told him, he said, why are you here? Are you going to open an account? And I said, actually, I have an account here. He said, oh, you do? Well, that's so, oh my God. He was like honored. He was like, wow, you have an account at our branch. You're kidding me. I'm like, he said, why, what, what brings you here to our, our lovely bank? And I was like, well, I'm taking out money tomorrow. I'm moving. He's, you're moving. You're <laughs> kidding me. Where are you moving to? And I said, like, well, I'm moving. I don't know. Here's my new address. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this address. Okay. Tomorrow, what time are you moving? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I maybe mid middle of the day. He said, well, how about I come and help you? And I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, he, he he came the next day and helped me move. Yeah, like the bank manager, the guy in the big office. He was the manager of the ban- of the branch. He had his you know his name on his little plaque there, and and he just took the day off, the half the day off work to to help me move. And I had treated him for hot pot that night. I mean, that's that's the thing, you know. I think that's one thing that I I do share, and I hope that nobody ever. I don't think you can get offended by it, but I don't want to make anybody feel offended. But here, everybody, as a foreigner, 
we sometimes feel like rock stars or are treated like rock stars. And, and I think a few people, obviously, a lot of people um, take advantage of that. But it, it's kind of like if we saw, like, I don't know, you saw uh, your favorite artist on the side of the street fixing his car or his, he has a flat, you'd stop and be like, oh my God, can I help you? And a lot of Taiwanese treat foreigners like that. That's one thing that I've, I just fell in love with over here. I hope, I hope that never, that never changes, but it, it probably will. Especially down south, man. Taipei is a little more jaded. They're like, ah, white guy. So being treated like a rock star every day, you know, sounds kind of great. But I was curious if Brandon ever feels like having that kind of expectation on him ever gets kind of limiting. For the most part, I, I, I do enjoy it. I think that Taiwanese people are just incredibly friendly. And that rock star mentality is, is kind of cool. But it, it can be bad because some people can only see you as that. And uh, it will limit you somewhat to, to get close to people. Like, for instance, there are people who certainly put you into this box and this is what you are and this is what you do. And, you know, sometimes you actually live up to the stereotype. Sure, I've, I've been known to have a beer at 7-Eleven. So people are going to see you this way. Uh, they're going to have whatever expectations they're going to have. Have you found any way to work with that, get more real conversations started? I find a smile, smiling, and of course, eye contact. Smiling and eye contact are what I use to break down the barriers. And then, of course, I try to approach it really from a friend's point of view. Kind of like... Like, like we do back home, you know, small talk. I don't want them to have any, any preconceived ideas about me, about me being your typical foreigner. I want, I want them to know me as I am rather than the ideas that uh, they have about foreigners. Okay, so I guess here's the million-dollar question. If you had a chance to get rid of some of these preconceived notions, I mean, if it was easier to be just another guy on the street, would you give up this status? W- would you give up your, you know, your rock star powers? Hmm. No. To be honest, I wouldn't. No. Because, I mean, I've, I've actually thought about that. Oh, boy get me in hot water. I just, I be honest, I wouldn't. I like, I like being the foreigner. I like that aspect. I don't want them to have any preconceived ideas, of course, of course, about me. But I want, I like being different. Like, no matter how much, no matter how great I am at the language, no matter how great I am at breaking down some barriers, they still know that I'm a foreigner, and I will always be a foreigner in Taiwan. And actually, I'm pretty cool with that. I like being a foreigner in a, in a foreign land. I like it here, and and the people here treat me well, and I want to treat them well. As long as we can respect each other, and yeah, we should be friendly. So, one thing I didn't mention, Brandon actually does sing lead vocals in a rock band. It performs all around the island. So, rock star, for most of us foreigners, that's just hype. For Brandon, it's a little bit more earned. You can learn more about his band Adoa, that's the name, Adoa, on its Facebook page. All right, we're going to take a little break here. Stay tuned for more stories of coming home and making home from Taipei Story Slam. Welcome back to Hearsay. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, 
we're exploring the theme of coming home. Our next storyteller is Wade's son. He's Taiwanese, but he's spent quite a lot of his life calling a completely different place home. Here's his story. Ever since I was little, I always had this fear of going to the army. See, I, I had this condition growing up where, with my stomach, where if I need to go to the bathroom, I need to go. There's no holding back. My parents and I would used to go travel, go on trips, and I would live souvenirs everywhere. McDonald's, KFC, airport lawn, everywhere. My parents would be really upset with me. They would tell me, what are you going to do when you go to the army? <laughs> so it's always been my fear growing up. I don't know what's going to happen to me. So after I graduated from elementary school, I got sent to Canada. During my 12 years in Canada, I didn't get to see my parents a lot, um, especially after I graduated from my university. I wasn't allowed to come home because if I come home, I'll get sent to the army. So after I graduated from university, my parents and I would meet somewhere. So I remember meeting them first time in Japan. I hadn't seen them for about two years, and we were spending time in Japan for about five days. And they had to come home after five days because they adopted a lot of dogs. Sixteen. Sixteen stray dogs back then, but now, thirty-two. Yeah, so they had to come home. I remember on the way to the airport, I told my mom, I think I should really come back with you. I haven't been spending a lot of time with you, and I think I really need that. And my mother said to me, no, you don't have to. You're out there pursuing your dream. You're out there. Your father and I don't need you to come home. We can take care of each other. So I watched them pass through the security gate, and I watched them, and I watched them. Until I couldn't see them anymore, I started to cry. I cried because I wasn't there when my dad had surgery. And I wanted to be there with my mom, but I couldn't because the army thing. So I don't know when I'm going to see them next. Two years later, maybe, for another five days. If I'm lucky enough, maybe 20, 20 times, 15 times, 10 times, I don't know. So my parents and I went back to this relationship on the phone, usually me and my mother. So it's like having this relationship with your operating system, except my mother does not sound like Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> I mean, she's a beautiful lady and everything, which she can tell by looking at me. <laughs> but her voice, on the other hand, you know, on a good day, I couldn't tell the difference between her voice and my dad's. So when I went back to Vancouver, I started my life as an actor slash waiter. But mostly, mostly waiter. See, one of the reasons I wanted to be an actor is I wanted to experience different things, different characters, you know, like, like experience different genre, things I would never do in my real life. But then I totally, totally got that in Vancouver. See, I auditioned for awesome parts like Chinese restaurant waiter, <laughs> Asian cook, a guy who doesn't tip, <laughs> bad driver, immigrant, <coughs> and I was Asian twice on the show Arrow. You know, it's extremely rare to have 
the same actor playing two different parts on the same show in the same season, but <laughs> but I was just that good, <laughs> or they couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> so I got really frustrated. I, I called my mother. I said, "Mother, I, I think I should come home. If I want to pursue my actor dream, I should be in Asia. I should be really playing different parts." My mother said to me, "No." If you want to come home, you would have done so ten years ago. Not now. You're too old. <laughs> so then, a week later, I got this call from my agent. He told me I got this part in the TV show King and Maxwell. And I went on set the next day, and Rebecca Romaine, she's sitting next to me, and she turned around with a soft voice. She said, "Hi, I'm Rebecca." And I was like. I know who you are. You're the X Men, Mystique, Blue Lady. But she was like, "I have to play cool." So I was like, "Hi, I'm Wade. <laughs> nice meeting you." And then Zhang Tianning, the other lead guy from the other end of the trailer, walked out to me and he said, "I really like our scene together. You know, it's so funny." And I said, "Yeah, whatever. It's only one scene, one day. I don't really care." But then he kept on saying, "Oh, I think by the end of the series, we should have a little twist in our relationship." Oh, by the way, what I play? I play the guy's best friend, A.K.A. the Asian cook. <laughs> so, so I was like,、uh, I thought it's a one-day thing, and he said to me, "No, no, no, you got a recurring part."、So、recurring part? I got so excited. I went back to my trailer. Yes, I had a trailer, <laughs> and I phoned my agent. I called my parents. I said, "I, this is it. This is my big break. I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it." And then the writer even told me if we ever get to season two, it's gonna be my part is gonna be a lot bigger. So, has anyone heard of the show King and Maxwell? <laughs> you, you do. So, I, so you see me, right? You see, remember? I've never watched. <laughs> see, that's the problem. You never got to season two. There goes my big break, and my heart was. Broken, totally, completely broken. So I was like, "This is it. I'm gonna go back to Taiwan." So I booked my flight ticket. I came back to Taiwan last August, and I faced my biggest fear of going to the army. And that's why I'm late today because I was in the army. And now I have a new fear. I fear that people are gonna ask me about my age, and then they're gonna say, "Aren't you a little bit too old for the army?" But you know what? I don't care. I'm an hour away from my parents, and I learned so much about them I didn't know before. Like my dad doesn't like iced coffee, <laughs> and my mother, I taught her how to use Facebook two weeks ago, and now we're friends on Facebook. <laughs> That's. Thank you very much. That was Wade's son. When he told the story, he was about halfway through his mandatory military service, which he served at an elementary school teaching English and drama. He's out now, and he says it was actually a pretty rewarding experience. No unfortunate bathroom incidents to report. In the end, Wade decided to leave Taiwan and return to Vancouver to pursue his acting career. He told me he made the decision because in Vancouver his career is already somewhat established, but here in Taiwan. He didn't even know where to start. I feel like in Taiwan, I have to start everything over, and it's a really small circle to break into. Like even I, I don't know, I haven't tried. So, but just from here talking to people, like getting an agent, and it's it's hard. Like you got to break into the circle to to be into acting. And people look at your age. You know, I'm I'm 30 years old now, and I don't have time to sign a 10 year contract or a five year contract with some agency, and then. Like try to do everything because that's I, I actually shot one thing 
when I was when I was in Taiwan, and I, I talked to a lot of people on set, and they were telling me that they want you to, they basically want to make you a famous person first, and then you do acting. So they want you to do like host TV shows. They want you to be a singer. They want you to do everything, like just get your name out there. But that's not what I want to do. I just want to do my acting stuff. So I don't want to spend another couple of years try to get started again, only to find out that I'm too old for the industry. And if I come back here, there's less competition as well for Asian actors. I feel like in Taiwan, there's a lot more competitions for people like me because everyone can speak Mandarin and probably better than me. Wade's been back in Vancouver just about a month now, and he's already had two auditions. So, so far, he says he thinks there's definitely a lot of hope in the city for aspiring actors. Next up, we're going to hear from Laurel Buckolds. She tells the story of visiting her home in the U.S. after living in Taiwan for several years. Here she is, live at Taipei Story Slam. I had moved to seven different states by the time that I was 13. And we were currently living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at that time. And it wasn't enough that Kurt Cobain had just died. My father informed me we were going to be moving to Colorado. The conversation kind of went something like this. F*** you, Dad. I don't want to move. Where did you learn that language? I learned it from you. That really happened. I emulated the drug commercial. My mother told me I would be going to Ponderosa High School, and I said, I'm going to high school at a steakhouse. (laughs) I didn't like Colorado very much, and I didn't fit in very well. But beside the fact of not knowing where my home was, home was always a sketchy place for me to be because my father was a very angry man. To give you an idea of how angry he is, he curses at the news, He curses at stars on the television. He yells at golf. And one year, while watching the Super Bowl, he picked up the little doll that was on top of the television, and he winked it at the TV, and he said, F*** you, Michael. At Michael Jackson, as he was singing We Are the World at halftime. (laughs) This made living in my house very awkward. So... I continued to grow up, I got through high school, I got through college, I studied politics, made me hate my government, obviously, and I wanted to travel, so I came to Taiwan. After being in Taiwan for two years, you kind of get this sense that, you know, you miss home. It doesn't matter where you would have been. You just kind of get a nostalgia for home. Oh, I miss Mexican food. Oh, I miss the mountains. Oh, I miss my friends. That kind of thing. And I jumped on the opportunity to take a free courier flight home, which means I had 12 hours to get on a plane and go home, and all I had to do was take auto parts. So I called my father at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I said, Dad, I'll be home in 36 hours. And he went, oh, that's, that's nice, because it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And I called my friends and told them I'd be home, and none of them really had time to plan off from work, because they work real jobs in the United States. Not that we don't hear. <laughs> So going home, I decided I was going to make this a trip also where I would see my grandmother, who I hadn't seen in 10 years. So I flew the flight home, and I went to Buffalo, New York, to see my grandmother, who turns off her hearing aid at uh, family dinners so that she doesn't have to talk to everyone. And my mother came to join me, and I had those moments of growth that you can only have after being away for a long time, and then you come back, and you realize, like, what is not yours, and what 
it is like oh that negativity belongs to my mother not mine oh and she got that from her mother okay and you have these epiphanies about who you are as a person and how you separate away from your family which is so critical to growth so I had that mind blown and then I flew home to Colorado to see my father and my brother now my brother I grew up in the same house with and the tension of being around my dad all the time means that we didn't have that great of a relationship And two weeks before this trip had happened, he had started a Facebook profile where he added 22 family members and my friends from high school and neglected to add me. And I was hurt. I was like, what the hell did I do? The only thing I could ever come up with after years and years was I called him fat when we were kids. But I was an older sister. That was my job. Okay. So we go home. My friends are too busy, really. My best friend of 18 years, who I still know, was going on the second date with a guy who was, she was sure was going to be the one. And we spent 24 hours together. I was a little hurt by this. I mentioned this to my mother. I said, Jen doesn't really have time for me. I still love Jen, and no, he wasn't the one. But that's how it worked out. She convinced me that I needed to see my brother on the final night that I was there. So we go to dinner, downtown Denver. We are there at dinner for three hours. I ask my brother question after question. How are you? How's your love life? How's the car? How's your job? Where are you living now? What's going on with you? For three hours. And for three hours, I got polite pleasantries back at me. And after three hours, he had not asked me one question about how is Taiwan? How are you? How's our grandmother you just saw? Nothing. And I flipped out (laughs) by the end of the three hours. I said... You know what? I am the only sister you're ever going to have, and you've spent the last three hours ignoring me, and I don't know what I've ever done to you, but I'm reaching out to you, and nothing is happening. And he looks at me, and he says, You're a f***. (laughs) And we have exchanges of bad words on the street in front of a nice restaurant of downtown Denver, and he goes, F*** you, I'm taking off. And my mother looks at me and says, is this why Jen doesn't want to hang out with you? (laughs) We drove home in silence. This is a true story. We drove home in silence for 45 minutes back to Parker, Colorado. And the next day, I'm asking my dad, what can I have done better? And he's like, I don't know, Laurel. He's just pissed off about something in high school. I really don't understand. He's your brother. I don't know. And I told my parents I wasn't coming back for five years after this trip because it wasn't worth the money and the stress. And I went back to Taiwan and I couldn't get back to Taiwan like fast enough. And when I got back, I decided that after years of trying to get some kind of validation and love from my family that I wasn't going to do anymore, it wasn't worth the pain. And it was at that moment that I was free. And four months later, I did get an apology letter from my brother explaining in a seven-page letter all the hurt that he had had from childhood, and none of it was from me. None of it had anything to do with me. It was all about our family and how we learned how to either express anger in our house or repress it, and it didn't really work. And that was nice to have, and it fit a lot of things, but what I came to realize was not needing validation from anyone or anything outside of yourself is the greatest freedom you can have. And for me, that felt like waking up and coming home. So home is wherever I am. Home is where the Laurel is when she is happy and content being centered. Thank you. 
That was Laurel Buckle. She's a comedic performer with Taipei Improv and the Taipei Players. It's been about three years since that trip home, and when I spoke with Laurel after the show, she told me that the family situation has improved quite a bit, and that she now speaks with her father and brother fairly regularly. Laurel says she hasn't always been a performer, and we also talked about what it's been like for her getting into performance in Taiwan over the last year or so. She told me that this experience has been like coming home in its own way. Because I was being creative and giving a part of myself out that I hadn't been able to do in the past, that I had shut down for years. And when I finally let the creativity out, I finally started meeting people that I connected with and bonded with. And in that, it was like coming home. So I think there's a lot of performance art opportunities up here in Taipei, and especially with music or comedy. There's just a lot of outlets, and there's a whole artist community up here. So yeah, I think Taipei has got it going on, and it's a small enough place. I mean, it's a huge city, but it's a small enough city that for a foreigner, you get recognized a lot easier for your achievements than you would, say, in New York City or Chicago or somewhere like that at home. So, yeah, I do think it's pretty easy to get involved in the arts up here. You're listening to Hearsay on ICRT FM 100. We'll be back in a few minutes with more stories from right here in Taiwan. Welcome back. I'm Keith Manconi, and this is Hearsay with stories on the theme of coming home from Taipei Story Slam. I want to take a quick moment here to encourage anybody who's listening to really consider making it out to a Story Slam event, either as an audience member or as a storyteller. Taiwan is a place where stories worth hearing happen every day, and Taipei Story Slam is a great place to hear them. To become a featured storyteller at a Story Slam event, you can send them a one-paragraph pitch of your story to taipeiplayers at gmail.com. Once again, that's taipeiplayers at gmail.com. The next event is November 27th. Our next speaker is Jerome Keating. He's an American expat who's lived here since the late 80s. And since coming to Taiwan... He's thrown himself into the study of the island and has written extensively about it. Now, he's going to tell the story of how he came to Taiwan in the first place. I'm looking for a job a long time back in Dallas, and I get an offer from a company called Otis Engineering. Otis Engineering does what we call downhole equipment. If you know the oil business, you have the derricks and that, but going down hole, you read, need all types of different pipes and drills and everything, and Otis specializes in that. And Otis is a part of Halliburton. Halliburton, anyone know Halliburton? Big Red. But anyway, I get this job offer with Otis Engineering. I'm living in Texas, and I think, wow, I'm in Texas, I'm in oil, I'm with Otis, which is a part of Halliburton, Big Red. I am set for life. When you're hot, you're hot. When you're not, you're not. So I'm thinking, mm, I'm hot. Not so. <laughs> I'm with the company about eight months, and then the whole Saudi Arabian oil thing in the early 80s 
collapses the oil business. And Otis starts laying people off. They did not see this coming. You know, about two weeks before we started laying people off, they were hiring people. So people were like hired and two weeks later, boom, they're gone. So eventually I get laid off. I go to another job working with the city of Dallas and then comes along another job offer for me from Bechtel Engineering. Anyone know Bechtel Engineering? Cap Weinberger, if you're from California, big engineering company. They were building an MRT in Taiwan and they offer me this job to be manager of technology transfer on that. And so I'm thinking, hmm, should I strike while the iron is hot? And I'm thinking, ah, no, do I really want to do that, you know? Because I'm joining a new company, okay, that's a little bit of stressful. But I'm going overseas, I'm divorced at this time. The, uh, I didn't get the shaft, by the way, but I, <laughs> I didn't really come out ahead either. And I'm leaving my kids. And, but they're in high school age, so I figure, hmm, I can, you know, they can be pretty well left alone if I'm overseas. But I'm thinking and thinking, should I take the job? Should I take the job or not? Ah, going back and forth. I go to all different people, ask them, you know, what do you think? Should I take the job? Now, they were offering me three times the money I was making in the States, so... If you had an offer like that, would you take it? Take it and run. But I'm still, you know, say, oh, should I really strike, you know, while the iron is hot? And I'm going on and on and on. And I finally accept the job. And I'm on the plane coming over here. And had a crazy flight because I joined it in Dallas. It had come from New York and they had had a bunch of Korean merchant marines who had sailed around from Korea to New York. They were coming back and they were drunk as pigs. They had been at sea for about eight months and now they had a chance to let loose. Anyway, I'm getting here and mm, I'm thinking, when you're hot, you're hot. When you're not, you're not. This one took me a month to decide to accept it, but at the end, I was hot. It was a good choice. That was Jerome Keating. He's taught as an associate professor here in Taiwan at both National Taipei University and Chinese Culture University. Now, on just why he decided to stay here, Jerome told me the work was good, of course, and the pay helped, too. And he just kept getting deeper and deeper into the island. Once I was here, one job led to another. And after about four years here, I got married. And so that, of course, helped cement the uh, you know, relationship of staying in Taiwan. And I usually say, you know, people are friendly, food is good. But I guess one other thing is that I have a certain penchant that I like change and diversity and in Taiwan, you find plenty of that, you know, not only being a different culture, but also things are happening and changing very quickly in Taiwan. In my neighborhood, for instance, there's always a new store being open. 
store being closed, a new shop, a new restaurant opening. Most of you say nothing is ever the same. And then Taiwan itself has changed very much in the you know, 25 years that I've been here. So that whole combination really made it very appealing to me. The thing is, Jerome hasn't just been a resident of Taiwan. About 10 years after coming here, he really started to throw himself into the study of the island, especially its struggle for democracy. He's written a number of books about Taiwan. He's advocated for it internationally. And I wanted to know, what hooked him? What about Taiwan made him want to make it the focus of his study? When I first came, martial law had just lifted And many people were really afraid to speak their minds about what they thought about the government, about what they thought about their past here. But, he says, pieces of Taiwan's history would filter through conversations. And when one conversation landed on the 228 massacre, for those who don't know, that's a 1947 uprising against Taiwan's KMT-led government, he says that experience changed his perspective. I first found out about Urba from talking to a girl at a party, and all of a sudden, I don't know how we got on the topic, because I didn't know anything about Urba at the time, and she became vehemently angry, and I'm wondering, where is this anger coming from? Her grandparents had been killed during Urba, and, you know, that told me, you know, something wasn't right. There was something buried in the past that most people had long been silent about. And it wasn't just conversations about the past. He says another draw is that he was actually here to see firsthand some of the major early popular elections in Taiwan. First, of course, there was the legislative yuan in 92, and then for the presidency in 1996. You know, these things, you begin to see a democracy in development evolving from the one-party state of the KMT. And I had always been an advocate of democracy, and this gave me some very good close-hand observations. That was Dr. Jerome Keating. His most recent book on Taiwan is The Mapping of Taiwan, Desired Economies, Competing Monopolies. It was out in 2011. All right, we're going to finish up the show today with another little piece of my conversation with Brandon Thompson, the Canadian expat we heard from earlier in the show. I sat down with Brandon in the ICRT studio. DJ Joey joined us as well. Here, Brandon tells us a little bit about what it means to make a home out of a small place like Taiwan. Everybody kind of knows everybody. You could meet everybody on this island. Everybody who you want to meet within six months if you really look at that that kind of small community. That So a long time ago, there was a bar called Bliss. I remember I went there when I first came. And I, I went to Bliss, and one dude at the bar didn't get his name or anything like that. He was like, how long have you been in Taiwan? And I was, at that point, I'd been in Taiwan maybe a week or two. And he was like... It's a great place to live, great place to grow, great place to have a family, great place to to exist. You're never going to feel like home here, uh, but you're never going to feel like home back home anymore. He's like, he's like, there's no home anymore. 
what you will feel is you're going to feel comfort and happiness to, to be a part of this, this great country. But he was like, but there's two things. As a foreigner, you got to know this. You either have your reputation or you can have a hell of a good time. But you cannot mix the two because, because this island is really small. And if you have a really good time, people will find out. And people will know. And you will have to go back home <laughs> eventually because you will not have anybody. Your reputation will precede you on this island. But if you have a good reputation, uh, you're set over here. You know, there's people will work with you. And, you know. So I, I, I decided right then, I was like, huh. how much fun are we talking about? <laughs> what kind of fun? Just why? Well, I just want to know. I mean, obviously, I'm... You know, I chose I chose the one that uh, is is less exciting, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> he took the blue. Pill. Yeah, I took the blue pill. <laughs> went Lame. back to work. <laughs> yeah, went back to work. <laughs> I want to remember none of this. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's it for today. You can let us know what you thought of the program by leaving a comment on the ICRT Facebook page or on our blog. You can also find the complete program online on the ICRT website and blog, as well as on iTunes. It's posted on the Taiwan Talk podcast stream. Big thanks to today's storytellers. Also want to give a thank you to Taipei Story Slam founders and organizers, Sean Scanlon and Mandy Rovita. You can learn more about Taipei Story Slam and their Grand Slam storytelling event coming up later this month on their Facebook page. Thank you for tuning in. Hearsay will be back next week, same time, same place, with more stories from right here in Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi. See you next time.